and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rodner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, July 15th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by a video conference by Sarah Carlin-Smith of The Pink Sheet. Hi, Julie. And Rachel Kors of Stat News. Thanks for having me. Later in this episode, we'll play our Bill of the Month interview with KHN's Ray Allen Bichelle. It's about a mother and daughter who teamed up to fight the daughter's outrageous emergency room bill for abdominal pain. And if you missed it, I interviewed HHS Secretary Javier Becerra on Tuesday, and we posted that interview Tuesday afternoon. It should directly precede this podcast in your feed if you're a subscriber. So first, this week's news. Let's begin on Capitol Hill, where Congress is back from its July 4th recess and getting down to work on the twin infrastructure bills. And I say infrastructure in air quotes because the bipartisan bill we talked about last month is what we think of as traditional infrastructure, roads and bridges and broadband. But the bill that's likely to pass with only Democratic votes includes what the Biden administration is referring to as human infrastructure, including health care and child care. Earlier this week, Senate Democrats announced agreement on a three and a half trillion dollar outline. What's in there for health care? Well, Julie, there's quite a bit in there for health care, and it seems a little ambitious. So we'll see how much actually ends up making it through, if anything. But according to the framework and kind of details that emerged yesterday, I mean, they're looking at some pretty big changes. We have adding additional kind of Medicare um, benefits for vision, dental, and hearing, which like Medicare Advantage plans have sometimes, but it's not necessarily included in traditional Medicare plans. They're hoping to extend subsidies for low-income people who are shopping on the Affordable Care Act exchanges. Um, that were- They're going to make those temporary subsidies permanent. As permanent as you can make them in a reconciliation so, right, They're and going to they're, extend them. Yes, they're going to extend them. They're going to be playing with a lot of the numbers, but we have extend right now. And then I think another big initiative is that they're hoping to um, lower drug prices, kind of that's vague at this point, and then also kind of address the Medicaid kind of coverage gap in states that have not expanded yet. I think they're going to have to get creative. But um, those are kind of the policies that they're eyeing at this moment. Yeah, I asked the secretary on Tuesday about extending Medicaid to the states that haven't expanded, and he very artfully ducked the question. Sarah, they know that they can only do as much to expand health care as they can basically save in drug prices. So is that going to maybe encourage them to, to be a little braver than they might have been um, otherwise? I think that definitely is a good motivating factor for them, but there's still a lot of tension among Democrats as to how exactly they they go about doing drug pricing. So right now you have the House proposal around negotiating drug pricing that would peg what the U.S. pays to international prices that are typically lower and There's not the same enthusiasm for that among many people in the Senate, according to Ron Wyden, who's sort of spearheading the effort there. And then there's also people on the House side, more moderate Democrats, who actually voted for H.R. 3 a while back. And now that it actually might have a chance of becoming law are kind of a little more reticent to support that idea. So the devil is kind of in the details of can they actually get to a drug pricing bill that all the Democrats can get on board with. 
And of course, we remember that all the Democrats have to get on board with this entire bill or it can't pass because the Republicans don't plan to have any part of it. And there's certainly many other parts of the package that are controversial within the party as well. Yes. So. Speaking of which, Rachel, um, I, I noticed that uh, negotiators have sort of agreed to add hearing, vision and dental benefits to Medicare, but not necessarily to lower the eligibility age from 65 to 60, which was something that President Biden ran on as a candidate. Is that to maybe avoid a big fight with hospitals who are okay with expanding benefits, but not so okay with getting paid Medicare rates for people who are currently mostly covered by private insurance? Right. I mean, I think that it certainly, you know, could be said that part of the strategy may be to only pick a fight with one giant sector of the healthcare industry at once. But yes, I think just like as I've looked at the numbers, you know, and um, talked to experts about it, there's I think a question about like how necessary is that policy? How big would the impact be? A lot of these people that fall in this age range, they do have some sort of insurance. You know, there's certainly there could be room for improvement, but I think compared to adding Medicare benefits, looking ahead to the midterms, I mean, this could have a huge impact on people's lives if seniors are able to, you know, get dentures that they couldn't afford before or, you know, help them see. Like these are really tangible improvements that, you know, they may not be operational. We'll see what the timeline is on it, but I think it would be very popular among a very important voting block um, heading into the midterms. And, and yeah, and despite what Joe Namath keeps telling you on TV, you are not currently entitled to all of these benefits if you're on Medicare. You're only entitled to these benefits if you live in a county that pays high enough that there are Medicare Advantage plans that wish to offer them with the extra money. Um, So this would actually make you entitled to at least some sort of benefit. Obviously, they need to sort of work this out. We should remind people who are not familiar uh, with the reconciliation process that it's even though they're trying to do this as quickly as they can, it's a lengthy process. What they're doing now is a budget resolution that has to pass both the House and the Senate, and it will have what's called reconciliation instructions for committees, and then the committees have to produce their legislation, and then the legislation has to go to the floor of both the House and the Senate. And remember, there are only 50 Democrats in the Senate, so they will need the vice president to break a tie. Um, And in the House, they have, what, three or four votes to spare at this point. So there's a lot of talk about how, as you said, Rachel, how ambitious this is, but getting what they're outlining now seems a little bit unlikely. They're probably going to have to scale at least some of it back if they're going to sort of walk that tightrope between the more moderate Democrats and the more progressive Democrats who are all going to be sort of fighting for for their way. I would point out also that HHS on Wednesday uh, announced that more than 2 million people have signed up for Affordable Care Act coverage during the special enrollment period that President Biden launched in February and that ends in August. That's a way bigger number than most people expected. And certainly the larger ACA subsidies that we were talking about uh, had a uh, a major role to play in that. I mean, I know that's in there now. And I know that that's going to be sort of a, a big priority. Is that sort of the biggest priority, do you think, in this package? Is that going to be the last thing that's going to fall? Or maybe these Medicare benefits, which could play well in the midterms? I mean, I certainly have heard some skepticism about the Medicare benefits and maybe unintended consequences of of a new Medicare benefit could have. So I think there's some conversation about that. But it's also important to keep in mind, obviously, the president doesn't make policy. But in terms of kind of healthcare priorities that the president outlined that he really wanted in there, the ACA subsidies were the one thing that he would commit to when he kind of made his joint 
address to Congress and released his big outline. So I think that's certainly a priority for him. And obviously building on the ACA is something that he sees as a good fit for his administration right now. It's also generally harder, I think, for politicians to take something away from people that they've already given them than it is to not follow through with something they've pledged. So I think it can become a little bit more politically difficult for them to pull back on extending the subsidies than it can on, you know, saying, okay, well, we can't get dental now. We'll try again another time. But once you sort of take money away, people already kind of were expecting in their pockets to help afford their health care, that can really rile them up. Yeah. Or people who have gone out and gotten health insurance at these big discounts. It's like, hey, guess what? Your premiums are going to double. So that's maybe something they wish to avoid. All right. Well, let's talk about COVID. Um, Some week we will not have to talk about COVID, but this is not that week. First, let's talk about boosters. Uh, In case you missed it, there was quite the kerfuffle in Washington last week when Pfizer announced it would seek FDA approval for a vaccine booster while federal health officials were busy saying there's no evidence yet that a booster is needed. And if so, when? Apparently, the sides have so far kind of agreed to disagree with Pfizer going ahead with boosters in Israel and federal officials waiting for more data. It seems one of the areas of resistance to the idea of a booster is that federal officials are worried that if whole Holdouts or people who are on the fence about getting vaccinated think they're going to need three shots. They may be less likely to even get the first. Um, it's it's a pretty tricky, you know, uh, balancing act here, isn't it? Oh, it's very complicated in that national sense. And it's also very complicated in an international sense. The World Health Organization this week was incredibly critical of the U.S. or other rich countries that are potentially considering this, essentially calling them greedy. Um, because we have huge swaths of the world that's unvaccinated now and is incredibly vulnerable to the Delta variant. And the WHO is basically saying we need to donate the shots to other parts of the world before we boost uh, rich people. One thing about the Pfizer situation is they're saying they have data around the need for this booster and they've also modified the shot to better protect against the Delta variant, but they haven't actually publicly shared or published that data. And there's certainly been lots of studies that seem to suggest our immunity will last quite a bit longer from these vaccines. One thing that's, I think, also notable is they were suggesting they were going to apply for an emergency use authorization for this booster. And unlike the normal FDA approval process, FDA almost has more discretion in a way to say no to an EUA. Under the typical approval process, you know, FDA would kind of have to look at the, you know, risks and benefits. And if the shot works, they wouldn't really be able to say no under an emergency use authorization. They have more discretion to not authorize it, even if, in theory, it is effective. And that might, I mean, you could see how sort of the the politics of this is not in a way of politics getting in the way of science, politics getting in the way of sort of what do you do with the amount of vaccine that you have? I mean, what's sort of the best use of, you know, looking looking at sort of the, the big picture? I just, I worry that this is, I know the Surgeon General is out with a sort of missive on health misinformation. I worry that the confusion around this booster is like, how long does immunity last? Is your immunity better if you actually had natural immunity, if you got COVID and got better? Or is it, does it matter if you got, you know, the two-shot mRNA vaccines or the one-shot J&J vaccine? I mean, I'm having trouble keeping track and I do this for a living. I worry about the public losing confidence because there's so much confusion here. Press Secretary Jen Psaki has been asked about this. 
what's the level of coordination on public health messaging? And I think her stance on that has just been that like Pfizer's a private company and they can kind of do what they want. And the government's going to be responsible for the government's communication. And she just just emphasized that line and kind of how much control they do or don't have. Although there was reportedly a private meeting the other night between Pfizer executives and all of the top health officials. Um, oh, there was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, which... but um, yeah, and I think Dr. Fauci told my colleague Helen Branswell that you know that meeting didn't you know lead to this big change in their opinion. Dr. Janet Woodcock told my colleague Nick yesterday that you know she's sticking by boosters aren't necessary right now. So I think that meeting was part of a dialogue courtesy meeting is how they described it. But that conversation will definitely be ongoing. Yes. And we'll, we'll get to that discussion from yesterday in a minute. Um, what about vaccine mandates or vaccine registries? I actually asked Secretary Becerra about this. He also ducked that question. Clearly, the Biden administration doesn't want to seem any more heavy handed than it's already being painted. But at some point, are we going to need vaccine mandates if only for health providers? We're starting to see that in Europe um, where they're requiring all health providers to be vaccinated. Um, Zeke Emanuel has had an op-ed this week urging that all, you know, health healthcare workers be vaccinated. But And we've seen some of it, but not as much of it as many public health officials think we need. It seems like mandating it for healthcare workers is at least the least controversial so far. And I think the idea is that you know, you may have a choice whether to go into a grocery store or not to some degree or to interact with various members of the public who may or may not be vaccinated. If you need health care, that's not really within your choice and you should be sort of protected from other diseases, I think, while you're getting that care. The other place they seem like they're fairly popular is in colleges and universities and potentially may come into play, too, at the local level with primary, secondary schools. There have been some places that were saying they would mandate it, but they want the FDA to actually fully approve them first. So there's, again, been ramped up pressure on the FDA to fully clear the vaccines. And I think that's another reason why the Pfizer booster became a little bit controversial, because people are like, hold up, wait, let's like get these first shots fully approved before we think about authorizing something else and adding to this um, complication. So while Congress was gone, President Biden took the opportunity to issue a wide-ranging executive order aimed at improving competition in the economy. There are a bunch of health-related instructions, including ordering HHS to deliver a comprehensive plan for reducing drug prices within 45 days, speeding rules for the sale of over-the-counter hearing aids, uh, directing the FDA to expedite imports of prescription drugs from Canada, and ordering a new look at revising guidelines that oversee hospital mergers. So along and quite varied list. Um, Might any of these lead to to something more concrete? Obviously, you know, Congress is going to have to deal with drug prices if they're going to do this budget reconciliation bill. But what about the rest of that list? There's certainly a number of drug pricing items that could be done through the executive branch. And I thought what was most interesting to me about the executive order on the drug pricing front is there are a lot of sort of holdover policies from the Trump era that the Biden administration has had to figure out how to deal with. And this executive order gives you a little hint of what they're interested in sort of pursuing or pursuing in their own manner, like drug importation, like pay for delay, which is this idea to try to get rid of these legal settlements that brand drug and generic drug companies enter into where essentially the brand drug maker pays the generic drug maker to stay off the market for a certain period of time rather than dealing with 
patent litigation. So those are things the FTC or you know the FDA and other parts of the government could have could make some rules and then make some progress in. Now these are probably very minor solutions in the grand scheme of drug pricing and drug policy. They might help some people, but they're not going to make a huge difference. I'm sort of surprised and not surprised about the drug importation thing, which has been, I mean, I have I have an entire file drawer full of, of paper on drug importation. Congress has been fighting about it since the late 1990s, since Bill Clinton was president. Um, and it's been bipartisan. I mean, there's been this sort of bipartisan push, but it's not just the drug industry. You know, most of a lot of people at the FDA, a lot of FDA commissioners from both parties have said, A, it's really hard to ensure the safety and B, it's not really really a plausible solution to high drug prices because everybody can't import drugs from Canada. Canada is so much smaller than the U.S. And Canada has already said they're not planning to allow their drugs to be imported to the U.S. because Canada doesn't have enough drugs to supply the U.S. And yet this keeps showing up as a, you know, because it's really popular and it sounds really good because drugs are cheaper. Same drugs we take here, cheaper in Canada. Yeah, the Biden administration actually submitted a legal filing in a court challenge related to the Trump's importation rule a number of weeks ago that when I read it, I thought it was a sign that they weren't that eager to go through with importation. So it was a little bit surprising to me to see that come back up. The question is, I guess, can they come up with sort of an importation plan that is more feasible, (laughs) that does work, again, and does help more people with their drug prices. I think, again, even people that are optimistic about this say, you know, it might be something that helps a small fraction of people with a small fraction of drugs. It's not the solution to drug pricing. Rachel, um, one of the things that's that's clearly in there that a lot of people noticed was this new attention on hospital mergers. Um, is that something that the hospital industry doesn't seem to be very excited about? Yes. Honestly, the American Hospital Association, which is kind of the big lobby for hospitals, has seemed very sensitive on this topic compared to kind of how willing they are to come out against other kind of policies. We didn't see any statements from them on the first surprise billing regulations. And immediately we have, you know, pushback from the hospital industry on this consolidation front. So, I mean, it was very vague. I think we are expecting to see some activity um, at the FTC under Lena Khan on a whole bunch of fronts. Again, it's just kind of a statement of principles, which was in President Biden's campaign platform. I mean, this is not new. And I think the position on price transparency was also kind of vague. Like it did generally support because it was a Trump era policy. I guess there was, in theory, some sort of question. But, you know, they said they'll support the measures. And that doesn't not clear what that means on the enforcement side, as hospitals, including many major systems, you know, really aren't complying with a letter of the law here. So I think that a lot of details to be filled in, but just statement of principles on this um, is definitely worth following. All right. So let's talk about that controversial Alzheimer's drug again. Yes, this is still a very big issue in the news. It's hard to know where to start. But let's start with Medicare, because Medicare could put the brakes on a very expensive drug that we don't actually know whether it works. Can one of you explain what a national coverage determination is, which is what Medicare is about to start? Yes, I can um, give it a shot because it's very technical. But basically what Medicare did earlier this week was they just kind of said, you know, we are going to work on a national coverage policy for this drug because I think there's a lot of questions about how well it actually works for patients. There are some safety concerns and, you know, there's monitoring that has to be done, all of that. So basically uh, kind of the status quo, I think, is when the FDA approves a drug, there's some discretion at the regional level as to how the contractors would cover this drug. But I think CMS definitely kind of put their stake in the ground and said it's 
it's not a super common thing for them to do. But you know what happens in some of these more controversial situations that we are going to have a national and more expensive things too. Yes, but they technically aren't allowed to consider costs. So, um, you know, read into that what you will. But I think, um, yeah, the cost certainly makes this a higher profile issue than it might be otherwise. So I think they just said, you know, we're looking into this. We are collecting public comment. They give a timeline for the first time because I think private insurers are watching this very closely um, because they're trying to make their own decisions on what they're going to cover, which have kind of already started to trickle out. So I think we have a... Which we'll get to in a minute. <laughs> right. Oh, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. But yeah, there's... They said they'll plan to have a final decision in about nine months' time. Um, so it's basically just them saying, we're going to, you know, at the federal level, you know, make a policy for this so there's not these disparities or different decisions at the regional level that could affect access. So acting FDA Commissioner Janet Woodcock, remember President Biden, has still not officially named anyone to head the agency, is under an onslaught uh, for the way this drug was approved. Now she's asking the inspector general to investigate whether all the proper rules were followed in the approval of this drug following the stat news story we talked about a couple of weeks ago, suggesting that the drug maker and the FDA had some conversations that perhaps violated some of the uh, the rules for how drugs get approved. Sarah, I can't remember the head of an agency ever asking the IG to investigate something. Can you? I can. Actually, I asked the um, HHSOIG about this in terms of like how unusual it was. And they said that they actually encourage agencies to request reviews. So it's not as uncommon as you may think. I think this case is pretty unique and much more public than it otherwise would be. And I think one thing that's important to point out about Woodcock's request, I think her letter sort of danced around this, but her comments at an interview um, at the STAT Summit yesterday really solidified this. She's not asking them to look at whether the approval was the right decision. She's not asking them to look at this controversy over whether it should have been granted an accelerated approval, this special process. She's really not asking them to weigh in at all on the science or data. She thinks that was the right decision. She reiterated that, that this was a solid approval. She's asking them to look at the process. Did FDA do anything in its interactions with Biogen that sort of violate the agency's policies? It's kind of a fairly narrow request, I think, given people's criticism of this approval. Is she looking for cover here? I mean, she's obviously, you know, she wanted, it was pretty clear that she wanted to be named the, uh, uh, and we've talked about this a number of times, she wanted to be named, you know, the, the permanent FDA commissioner. And there's there's been some pushback even before this, and now there's even more pushback. Um, I think there has been a number of attempts by FDA to sort of ease some of the tensions over this approval last week in particular. It doesn't seem like that's worked from the people I've talked to. In fact, I think most of the attempts have actually just inflamed the tensions. You know, Public Citizen saw the OIG request and they actually requested an OIG request into this back, I think, in January. So they've been pushing for this for a while and they said they want to make very clear that just because Woodcock is requesting this, they shouldn't feel like they have to limit themselves to what she asked for, that Woodcock herself needs to be investigated as part of this. And I think I think it's important to remember that a lot of the activities that took place, including some of the potentially most damning ones, took place when Wilcock was the head of the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research. And then also, again, last week, they sort of updated the labeling a bit to try and narrow who the patient population is for this drug because they initially approved it for a very broad indication that people felt like really didn't align with what was studied in the trials. Again, most people I talked to just felt maybe that was the right thing to do. Maybe it's good that she's requesting this investigation. But at the end of the day, to them, it just highlights the fact that FDA made a bad decision to begin with. And most people 
are, you know, see these as kind of very minor baby steps. And what they want is the drug to not be approved to begin with. And I think either until Biogen can produce data that really shows this drug works or that happens, a lot of people are just still going to be frustrated with the FDA. They can't really win here. Yes. And as Rachel mentioned, while we're going to wait for Medicare to make its decision, some insurance companies are deciding on their own that they're not going to cover the drug, saying evidence for its effectiveness isn't there, which, of course, is what the fight is about. But can these companies sustain that? I remember back in the 1990s, insurers refused to cover autologous bone marrow transplants for women with breast cancer, saying there wasn't any evidence that it worked. And it turns out they were correct. It didn't work. But they got buckets of backlash. I wonder whether the same thing is going to happen here if patients are, you know, really anxious to get this drug that is now approved by the FDA, how able insurance companies are going to be to, you know, hold the line and say we won't cover it. There's definitely room for them to change their positions. Um, It's especially something that's early. It's not necessarily like they can revise what they decide given the new evidence that could come out. And CMS could potentially try and generate some data of its own that, you know, may not be a randomized controlled trial, but could offer a glimpse a little earlier than the data that we may not see from Biogen for years and years. So I think that they, you know, maybe kind of looking at you know, some of the early data to make those decisions. Um, and it's just kind of unclear, I think, at this point, like how much patient pressure there will be and how much, how eager physicians will be to prescribe that. I mean, we've already seen some pushback from, I think last night, um, the Cleveland Clinic and Mount Sinai said, we're not going to administer this drug and they may not be alone in that determination, but it probably will just be kind of the large, wealthy institutions that can kind of afford to make that decision um, on principle. But I think it's kind of hard to read at this point. And patients, you know, obviously can pay for the drug um, if that's a choice that they make. But again, that raises the health equity questions too, you know. If, mm-hmm. Yeah, so if they have $56,000. Right, right. So, so um, it's a hard decision all around. Yeah. Sarah, this is very much not over, Right. I think the the key thing will be to watch what Medicare does, because I think Medicare will sort of set a precedent that a lot of the private sector plans will eventually follow. And they have a wide range of things they can do. They can basically say, we'll cover it, but only if people are enrolled in a clinical trial to ensure we get good evidence. They could narrow the population of who they think they should cover it for. So I think whatever um, Medicare does will certainly help the private plans in kind of backing up their decisions. There's also, I think, some reason to think perhaps the plans or some of these health systems are coming out against the product to some extent to maybe give them leverage to somehow push back on the pricing. Although again, this is this is not just a situation about a high cost drug. This is a high cost drug with very questionable Benefits. So even at a lower price, I think there are medical providers who would think it's not appropriate to give to many patients. Right. And potential health risks. I mean, even right. if it was free, there would be, uh, you know, the, the benefit versus risk question. Right. And there's, there's some brain swelling and some other side effects that, while in the most case in the trials were fairly mild and resolved, you're, you're talking about a fairly sick population and maybe patients that don't quite understand everything that's going on in their care. And I think that becomes right, much more complicated for doctors in terms of putting people through, you know, medical situations when they may not get any benefit. Sure, we will. We will come back to this in future weeks. Um, well, that is the news for this week. Now we will play my Bill of the Month interview with Ray Ellen Bichelle. Then we will come back and do our extra credits. <laughs> 
We are pleased to welcome to the podcast Ray Ellen Bichelle, who wrote and reported the latest KHN NPR Bill of the Month. Welcome to What the Health, Ray. Thanks. So this month's patient is a young adult, fully insured, but who still got stuck with a pretty big bill. Tell us who she is and what happened. Her name is Claire Langry. She's 21 and she's a college student at Stanford. Um, But like a lot of people, everything changed, you know, when the lockdown happened. And so she ended up moving to Colorado for a few months. And uh, it was during that time she was actually in the middle of a remote chemistry class in the kitchen of her home that she was sharing with a few other people. And she suddenly got this really intense pain in her lower abdomen and it just wouldn't go away. It was really constant enough that she was sort of doubled over and couldn't do anything. So she ended up calling her mom. And they found a a hospital nearby that happened to be in network for them. So she went to the hospital. And before we get to the money part, usually healthcare providers can at least say, hey, we saved your life or we found out what was wrong with you and we fixed it. But even that wasn't really the case here, right? She was pretty bummed about that. She ended up having this ER visit. They gave her some pain meds, did a bunch of tests, did a CT scan. And in the end, they gave her a diagnosis that turned out not to be the case. uh, Because when she went to see some specialists after the fact, once she got back home to California, the specialists looked at the CT scan and said, wait a minute, you said your pain was on what side? (laughs) The CT scan showed that uh, she did have an ovarian cyst, which was the diagnosis that the ER uh, staff had given her, but it was on the other side of her abdomen. So they're like, this this is not what caused it. So eventually the pain went away on its own. The pain eventually went away on its own. Yep. So of course she needed to go to the ER at the time, and she and her mom uh, did find one that was in their insurance network. So how much was the bill and how much was she expected to pay? Yeah, so the grand total that the hospital wanted was pretty eye-popping. It was about $18,000, more than that, actually. And now the Langrees, Claire, is insured through her parents. That family was expected to pay um, about 1300 of that bill. But what Claire and her mom were really frustrated with wasn't so much the charge for $1,300, but just what was in the bill. They were trying to charge for all sorts of crazy stuff. Yeah, one of the things you mentioned was uh, was a charge not for the painkillers themselves that they gave her, but for literally the act of pushing the plunger on the syringe. Tell us about that and how you end up with fees like this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there were all these different line items on the itemized bill. And, you know, there was the CT scan and there was pregnancy tests. All, all, everything had its own item. So she got two medications pushed through an IV, one was anti-nausea medication and one was a pain medication. And the, the medications had their own lines, as you pointed out. And then so did two IV pushes. Each one of those was $722.50 that the hospital wanted for an act that really takes a few seconds, like a matter of seconds. The way I've heard it explained is it's called unbundling. And it's kind of like a a similar phenomenon that you've seen with airlines, where, you know, instead of just paying one fee for the whole flight experience, you know, now you've got you're paying for the tickets, but you're also paying to choose the seat that you're going to sit in. You're paying for one bag and two bags. You're paying for this and that. And so it's essentially this fragmentation of bills into smaller pieces. And and each one individually can increase in price over the year, which uh, we do see 
in this case in Colorado with those IV push fees. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. It, it, it seems that it's not just, I mean, it's one thing when, you know, you charge $50 for, you know, a bag on, you know, on a flight, but this was $722 twice. Um, it, are they just doing it because they can? Yeah, I think so. That's the best impression that I've got. I tried to talk to the insurance company. Um, they couldn't really speak to me specifically about this or they didn't want to. In the end, it is important to know the hospital didn't get anything for those push fees. Um, the negotiated rate from the itemized explanation of benefits, you can see $0 that they got for those push fees. But they tried. And it's useful to know in some states, including Colorado, you've got a lot of data, all payer claims databases. That's that's public data. And so you can see from that that you know, even though they didn't get those fees in Claire's case, most of the time they do. They do get uh, typically hundreds of dollars for IV pushes. So it's not unusual. So one ended up happening with their bill. They ended up having to pay their share. Was that the... Yeah, they did. I mean, what I loved is that it was a mother-daughter duo. They really teamed up. Claire moved back home to California with her parents for uh, the winter. And this was really their hobby. They were like learning to navigate the system together. You know, the mom like fighting medical bills is a thing that she loves to do. She's got a lot of Canadian relatives. And so she says it's just absurd that like her mother could, after a week in the hospital, come out with a $20 bill. Meanwhile, Claire's got this thing. Um, so they were really fired up about it. And they they tried a lot of things. You know, they wrote letters to the insurance company um, or the hospital and copy the insurance company. They made a bunch of phone calls. They tried to figure out how much should these things have cost. Um, and in the end, the answer they got from the hospital was, you know, we've reviewed all charges and they are correct. Um, and Claire, you know, she's a, she's going to graduate college soon. The threat of collections was scary. She didn't want to graduate and start her, you know, full adult life with a bad credit score. So they paid it. So like too many stories, the patient in this case did everything right and still got stuck with a bigger bill than she should have. Um, what can other people in this situation do? I mean, is it worth trying to fight it? Well, they think so. Claire and her mom both said, you know, I wish more people would do this. At least, you know, kick up a little bit of dust because uh, this system is insane. And so they're going to try in the future. Well, first off, Claire's going to avoid emergency rooms. But second of all, it sounds like the two of them are not at all um, afraid of of diving right back in in the future when it's necessary. There's a few things people can do. One of them is to uh, get a hold of the division of insurance in the state because those people actually have a lot of resources. First off, they might have a good idea of what is a typical charge or data sources for where you can find that which helps um, write compelling letters to hospitals and, and make your case to the place trying to get these big bills. And there's a few other things. I mean, I think the key thing to take away is just persistence. Like it takes a lot of time to fight these bills. And, um, and in some cases, like this one, even though they put in a lot of time and did so much research, it didn't pan out. But the impression I got is it was worth it for them. And we should, before we get letters, don't, don't, we do not recommend not going to the emergency room, particularly in cases like this where you think you might have a burst appendix um, or an appendix that's about to burst. But yeah, beware and make sure you find one that's in network if you can. And I should say a couple more concrete tips than what I was just giving is get the itemized bill, get the itemized explanation of benefits, because those two show piece by piece what the hospital's trying to get and piece by piece what they actually paid for it. Um, so those are both pretty clarifying. And and if all if all else fails, you can send us your bill. Exactly. Send us your bill. We'll nerd out about it. We'll, we'll show you how on the website. And love it. There you go. <laughs> Ray Ellen Michelle, thank you so much. Thank you.
Okay, we are back. It's time for our extra credit segment where we recommend a story we read this week we think you should read too. Don't worry, if you miss it, we will post the list of these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Rachel, why don't you go first this week? Sure. Um, My extra credit is headlined, Plugging Obamacare's Biggest Hole Poses Dilemma for Democrats by the Politico healthcare team. And I think they've just done a really good job like staying on top of this developing issue and kind of getting really deep into the nuances of the difficulty that comes with kind of crafting a policy like this, where the Supreme Court has said you can't force states to expand Medicaid. So how do you offer incentives or programs specifically targeted at those states without like angering the states? We've talked about this a lot on this podcast, but I think this story specifically just does a good job laying out the challenges moving forward because yes, Democrats can say they want to do this all they want, but they have to, you know, produce bill text. And I think that's still um, going to prove very difficult. So I think they just did a great job. And that's a great primer on the issue that has come up in conversations for me this week. So I looked at it. Um, a Kaiser Health news story, government oversight of COVID air cleaners leaves gaping holes. And I thought it's a really interesting story because as we sort of moved on from thinking that surfaces were the kind of the key thing and we had to do all this cleaning in COVID, a focus on air quality has become a key thing. And you've seen these like filter type machines popping up everywhere. But this story raises the question of how do you know which ones are good? Are they good? And unfortunately, it points out that, you know, nobody in the government is really sort of verifying they do what they say they do or they do what they say they do in a way that doesn't cause other negative impacts. So right now, essentially, FDA doesn't regulate these products as a medical device. And EPA sort of regulates them to some degree, but that doesn't really mean they're looking at the efficacy or safety, including some concerns that some of these devices admit things like ozone or other toxic gases. So it just seems like a big gap. CDC does provide some guidance for consumers around what to pick, but people are spending a lot of money on these thinking it's making them safe. And it's obviously unfortunate if either they're creating other problems, health problems, or are not doing what they say they do, and you have this false sense of security and protection. I confess, I bought one and I spent days and days researching, you know, what's the best one that, that works easiest that doesn't, you know, emit ionizing particles. And it's, it, yeah, it was complicated. Um, that was a really good story. Well, my story is from the LA Times. It's by Jack Dolan and Kim Christensen, and it's called Botch Surgeries and Death, How the California Medical Board Keeps Negligent Doctors in Business. And I chose it because it is, alas, sort of an evergreen story about how state medical licensing authorities are routinely terrible about disciplining their colleagues, even those shown to have injured or killed patients or who present clear and present dangers due to drug or alcohol use. Apparently, in California, the board has a habit of suspending or reporting or revoking licenses, then staying those actions and leaving the doctors able to continue to practice and injure more people. The investigation is really well done, if depressingly familiar. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Yang, who still manages to make us all sound good. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at what the health, all one word at kff.org or you can tweet me i'm at jay rovner sarah i'm at sarah carlin rachel i'm at rachel course we will be back in your feed next week in the meantime be healthy <laughs>